For God, this is a new morning, but you are not a new God. It's a new season of life, but you're not new. I want to give you just 10 seconds alone this morning, church, just quietly where you are. Just offer up a prayer of gratitude to God. It can just be God today, this morning, right now in this moment, I thank you for, and just fill in that blank. And God, two things I'm grateful for in this season. Uh, One is uh, that that you came, Jesus, you came. I'm grateful for Emmanuel, God is with us. And may that provide comfort for people in this room or who are with us virtually this morning. May May it provide comfort in their chaos and in this season of life to know there is a God who is not just waiting for us to get through the valleys, a God who meets us where we are. And the other thing I'm so grateful for is how we are taught to cry out, Lord, come quickly, because we are experiencing chaos and we need Jesus to come and set all things right. So for the hope and the promise that you have brought to this world and that you will bring to this world, we give you thanks this morning. In the name of Jesus and the whole church said, Amen. Good morning. It's great to see those of you who are here with us uh, in person. So grateful for all of you joining us virtually today. I hope you have had a good last few days. I've prayed for you. I've given God thanks for this church uh, probably every day this past week, especially on Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't know how much traveling you did. If you did, I'm glad you're safe. For those of you who may be tuning in this morning uh, while you were traveling, safe travels. My family, we weren't able to leave until Tuesday around four o'clock and we hit the road and went all the way out to West Texas. We went to Lubbock to be with Casey's family. We hit up all the special places between here and there, Dairy Queen, Whataburger. Uh, We ate brisket on Thanksgiving because that's what we do with the Texas family. And there were some pilgrims somewhere years ago who were eating brisket on Thanksgiving. I'm sure uh, uh, we had a great time. I was married. I'm married into a fantastic family. And thankfully, we traveled around 2,000 miles together as a family. Thankfully, we like each other most of the time, which makes our our trips uh, memorable and uh, they don't seem like they go on forever. I had to get back last night to officiate a wedding for the woman who has been cutting my hair for about seven years. We've struck up a friendship. She uh, uh, decided to get married, so I was honored to be able to do a wedding in a living room last night. And here we are this morning. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 today. I've prayed for you. I've thought about many of you who have lost loved ones. I know losses and grief stack in life. They stack on top of each other. And I've thought about many of you who have lost loved ones or just losses in life, maybe not just losing loved ones, but losses of family systems or family members who have been together for so long and just maybe this Thanksgiving was different. And I tried to reach out to to a number of you as God brought you to my mind this past week, but I've uh, been an honor, it has been an honor to pray over this church over the last few days and through this holiday season. We're in a four-week series today leading up to Christmas, going through Advent. And I want to spend some time over the next few weeks in Luke chapter 1 and 2. We don't have much in the Bible about the birth of Jesus. Mark and John don't talk any about the birth of Jesus. Matthew talks a little bit. It's mainly from Joseph's perspective. In the Gospel of Luke, you don't have, or Gospel of Luke is where we get so many of the stories that we do share in the Bible about the birth of Jesus come from Luke. If it's not for Luke, 
You don't have the story of Elizabeth or Zechariah or the birth of Jesus from Mary's perspective. You don't have anything about Simeon or Anna. So many of the details in the birth of Jesus you don't have if it's not for Luke. Now what we know about Luke is he was a physician. He was some kind of doctor. We know Luke didn't come to know Jesus until Jesus had already ascended to the heavens. Most likely Paul led Luke to Jesus. And Luke was there in the second half of the book of Acts. He was there with Paul doing some of the mission work. So we know Luke had bought into the mission of God. And as he bought into the mission of God, he decided to write a book. And what Luke tells you is he then became a journalist. It's like he set his other profession aside, and now he became this missionary, this journalist, and he decided he was going to write a gospel. And in doing that, he decided to basically approach this like a research paper, where he did interviews, and he met with people, and he read other things that had been written about Jesus. And as Luke put together his gospel, he knew there were some details that other people weren't talking about out there that he felt were so important for the church to live out what it means to be the people of God. Look how Luke begins his gospel. Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4. Here's what it says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to those uh, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So he tells you right there, first of Luke, he did all kinds of research. And as he did all this research, held all these interviews, started putting together his story of the life and ministry of Jesus, he decided that I cannot write my gospel with Jesus at the age of 30 in public ministry. That there's so much you would miss out on if he started writing And the starting point was Jesus' public ministry with his teachings and his healings and driving out demons. For Luke, he decides to spend three chapters talking about the birth of Jesus and the birth narrative and how all this came about. Because for Luke, what he wants you to know is the radical nature of Jesus' teachings didn't just begin in the public ministry of Jesus. The radical nature and topics of Jesus' ministry and his life, they began in his birth. There's so much foreshadowing that happens in Luke chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 2. Walter Wink is an author who years ago, one thing he said was this. If Jesus never lived, we would not have been able to invent him. And what Walter Wink meant is you can get together the most creative minds and the most brilliant people and put them in a room and try to come up with a character who is the best character for the entire world and no one would be able to come up with what we have found in Jesus. And then Walter Wink said there are two words that you cannot use to describe Jesus. Number one is boring. And number two is predictable. He was not boring. He wasn't predictable. Now, I'm sure there are times when the apostles wished Jesus would have been a little more boring or more predictable. And maybe there are times you wish Jesus was a little more boring or a little more predictable. Now, we're in a season right now where there are some things that are predictable. I think it's safe to say that there are more traditions in your life and in your family between Thanksgiving and Christmas and any other time of the year. How many of you already have your tree and your lights up around your house? Anybody? Show of hands. How many of you already have Christmas music playing in your house? Show of hands. How many of you can't stand Christmas music like after you've heard it for like two or three days? It's okay. Just okay. There are a few of you in the house. 
So there are some things that are predictable in this season. I mean, hot cocoa, seeing lights, Christmas trees. There are some things that are predictable and Christmas cards. Now, I know it's a lot different than years ago where we would go to Hallmark or we'd go to Kroger and we'd pick, pick out a Christmas card and it would have something on the front of a blessings or a greetings or a manger or something like that. I know today we do things differently. Today, a lot of times we put our family on the front of Christmas cards and we send them out. I get a laugh out of how many people choose in like the month of April and May what picture they're going to put on a card that may go out in Christmas. Because we've experienced something as a family, so that's what's going to go on the cart. But if you were to go to Hallmark or if you went to Kroger and you looked at cards, a lot of times you'll find Christmas cards, something like this right here. Now here's the thing, when it comes to art, and you got one shot to present an image that tells a story, that's no easy thing. So the image that you see, hopefully most of you can see it right now, I mean, this is an image where billions of people around the world today, if they saw that image, they could tell you it is about the birth of Jesus. They may not even be Christian, but billions of people around the planet today would look at that image and they would know that is about the birth of Jesus. That is an image of a manger, Mary, Joseph, a light that is shining down. If you go to the next image, a lot of times you'll see a card that says something or that has something like this where there is, if you go to that next slide, if, uh, of, of an image of something like this where there's a greeting, but billions of people around the world today would see that right there and they would know that is about Christmas. It is about the birth of Jesus. And if you go to this next slide, we even sometimes see images like this. And I'm not exactly sure what this is. I don't know if it's a mixture of Dixie Chicks and the Golden Girls. It's three white ladies with a white baby Jesus and the lights are shining they got curly hair one of them has a banjo or a ukulele and she's playing left-handed which should let you know that the image isn't exactly accurate because angels are not left-handed I think we all know that right but you'll see images where even I mean we know like angels aren't all white people looking down on white Jesus but you pass through Kroger or Hallmark you see cards and, and this is how birth narratives are, are, are placed together there was a missionary who went to China back in the 16th century. So we're talking about hundreds of years ago. And they knew there was going to be a language barrier. So what the missionary did is the missionary took pieces of art and used art to make a connection. So as the missionary used art of Mary giving birth to Jesus and holding cute little swaddled up Jesus, the place where they were in China, they loved the image. They got the image. They wanted to worship the God who would come in human form, a God who would come like Jesus came, and then the Emmanuel promise of God is with us. They loved it. But then when the missionary got to the images of the crucifixion of Jesus, the place where they were in China, they were horrified. They didn't know what to do with an idea of a God who would come and then a God who would die. So they kept gravitating to the images of Jesus who was born and Mary who was holding baby Jesus and that is what wanted to, they wanted to draw them into worship and they didn't know what to do with an image of a God who would come and want to die. So here's the thing and we talk about this sometimes when it comes to the ministry of Jesus there are times we approach it like a buffet where there are parts of the life of Jesus we want to take hold of and take seriously and then some parts we just set aside and we all do this I do this you do this as a church, we do this sometimes where we elevate certain teachings or, or certain aspects of Jesus over the others. And we do the exact same thing with the birth of Jesus. Where there are some parts of the birth of Jesus that we love. 
cute baby Jesus, swaddled up Jesus. Can we just agree, like, no parent can swaddle that well as soon as a baby is born. It takes weeks to get it right. But then there's some parts of the birth narrative that don't make it onto the front of a Christmas card. And they shouldn't, right? Like, what do you do with so many of the scandals that are taking place? Like, how do you take a teenage pregnant mom who is not married and tell that story on the front of a Christmas card? Or the massacre of Matthew chapter 2 where Herod sends people to kill all the babies because his power is being threatened. Like, that would not make, it, make a very good cover on a Christmas card. Or even old woman Elizabeth who's barren and who knows throughout her life if she had had multiple miscarriages, if she just hadn't been able to get pregnant, but here she is as part of this story. Like, how do you tell that story on the front of a Christmas card? And there are times we pick and choose. So what I want to do over the next four weeks is I want you to see in Luke chapter 1 and 2 how there is this upside down, not kingdom, but a world that was upside down. And I'm not talking about twilight zone. I'm talking about things that have just been flipped and how the Spirit of God comes in the birth narrative to begin flipping things. How in the birth narrative, not just the ministry of Jesus, in the birth narrative, there is some foreshadowing of women are going to be given a voice in the kingdom of God and they don't have to wait until the ministry of Jesus for things like this to be launched. How the poor are being invited with dignity to the table of God. How outsiders and Gentiles will no longer be outsiders. There is flipping and stirring that happens. Let me show you just a few places in the birth narrative in Luke where this happens. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 16 and 17, an angel says this to Zechariah. Talking about Zechariah's son John, who would become John the Baptist. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts. There is this turning of hearts of parents to their children, the disobedience of the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Listen to what Mary says when Mary sings her song in Luke chapter 1 and verse 52, that God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble, has lifted up the lowly. In chapter 1, 77 through 79, Zechariah is making all these statements about John the Baptist and then Jesus. And he says this, to give his people, to give God's people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. Luke talks a lot about lost people in his gospel. Those shining, who, living in darkness, not just that a light's coming to shine on those living in the light and who are craving the light, but living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. In chapter 2, verse 32, Simeon says this, that a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory of the people of Israel. And then in verse 34 through 35, I can't help but chuckle a little bit every time I read this because this is the baby blessing. Simeon speaks over Joseph and Mary. And he says, he blesses them and he said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And he will be a sign that will be spoken against or opposed so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. In Luke's gospel, the birth of Jesus announces a theological, a social, and even a cosmic revolution. That the kingdom of God is ushering in a brand new era. And this era, elitism, tribalism, favoritism is going to be ushered out. Because a new thing is happening.
And there are times when Advent can be treated as this story with cute little baby Jesus. But when we read carefully, Advent is foreshadowing of the ministry that is to come. And what we sung about earlier is so true. There is a move of God. And it's a move of God that is so comforting that brings, that brings multi, a multitude of blessings with it. But the movement of God is also a movement that no one can avoid the impact. No one is safe from the impact of what the birth of Jesus brings to the world. Now, I've called this series. For the next four, four weeks, we're going to be in a series called Unstable. And I'm thinking about these ideas and I'm going to show you over the next few weeks where in the gospel of Luke things are flipped there's a stirring that happens things are turned upside down and it's not the kingdom that is upside down it's everything else that is upside down and there's there's a lot of instability that was happening in those times you had the Roman Empire that was uh, controlling things you had King Herod who was just crazy there was all kind of instability that people were suffering from and you think about the last year and a half or almost two years of our lives and the uncertainty and instability that we've uh, suffered from too. I remember a little, uh, a little over a year ago, I think it was last summer, I showed an image about a roller coaster that got stuck upside down. And this has become such an image that I often think about just in my own life, how I feel like I'm just suspended upside down. That I realized after messing around the internet a little bit, this is not the only time it's happened. Now this doesn't happen all the time, so I don't want to scare any of you from your vacation plans that you have next summer. And if you're scared of amusement parks, invite me to come with you and I will come. Because there's a Six Flags up in Illinois where people got stuck upside down for one hour, 32 people on this ride. And this ride is called Demon. Take seriously the names of rides before you get on them. And it's not the only time this has happened. There's an amusement park in China where a father and son were on this ride together and they got stuck, if you go to the next slide right here, they got stuck for 30 minutes upside down. And if you go to the next slide, you get a little closer look about father and, uh, of father and son who are being rescued. Now, here's what, I, here's what I would love to know about this image. Like, did dad convince son to go on the ride with him? Did son convince dad to go on the ride with him? And if so, how is their relationship today? Are they okay? Was this a bonding experience for them? And then here's one more ride. And this is in, Ar this is in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where these people got stuck for one hour upside down. I believe there were 23 of them on this ride. For one hour. And it's not the first time people got stuck on that ride upside down for one hour. It's happened twice. Now here's the thing. No one died in any of those images I showed you. No one suffered permanent damage. Everybody's okay, so you can go have a great time. But I think about those because I've had more moments in the year 2021, even more than in the year 2020, where I have felt like I've just been suspended upside down. And you can function a little bit when you're upside down, but after a while, like, you forget like, what is up and what is down and what is left and what is right, and how can we maintain trying to live a life of righteousness with God when it feels like I'm just upside down. And it's easy to feel this way in our culture and in our world with, I mean, so many things going on. And in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 1 and 2, I bet there were a lot of people who felt like their lives were upside down. So in the coming weeks, I want to talk about some of these things that are flipped in the birth narratives of Jesus. 
We're going to talk about the role of women in the birth narratives. We're going to talk about the poor, talk about Gentiles and how the good news of Jesus, even in the birth narrative, is for the entire world. But this morning, I want to begin by talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the birth narrative of Jesus. Because without the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1 and 2, there's no revolution. The Holy Spirit is behind every act of creation in the birth narrative of Jesus. It's like Luke wants you to know that what happens in the birth narrative and what happens in the ministry of Jesus does not happen without, without the movement and function of the Holy Spirit. Luke talks more about the Holy Spirit than Matthew, Mark, and John. And here's what's interesting to note. Almost half of the references to the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke happen in the birth narrative of Jesus. Almost half of them. Where Luke doesn't want you to miss out on what the Holy Spirit is doing. Let me read these to you. In Luke chapter 1. Verse 14 and 15, an angel is talking to Zechariah. And here's what the angel says. He, referring to John, He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, an angel is talking to Mary. And here's what the angel says. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. In chapter 1, verse 41, it says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he began to prophesy. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25 through 27, there are three references to the Holy Spirit and talking about this guy Simeon. And here's what it says. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. The Holy Spirit is at the center of every turning that you see in the birth narrative of Jesus. Every moment of creation, the Spirit energizes, prompts, and reveals. The Holy Spirit doesn't function in a way where the Holy Spirit has to be on center stage with all the lights on the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is trying to point the light and the attention to Jesus who was coming to redeem the entire world. So here are three things I want to leave you with. Three things we learn about the function of the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1 and 2 and what they mean for us today. Because this isn't just what did the Holy Spirit do then. I believe the Holy Spirit is still doing these same things now. And here's the first one. What you see in the birth narrative of Jesus is the Holy Spirit creates some instability. And if you're taking pictures, I just want you to note what I'm going to say next. Because first I want to say what I'm not trying to say and then I want to say what I'm trying to say. That the Spirit creates some instability. I don't think the, the, the Holy Spirit is creating the instability behind the evilness of the Roman Empire or behind King Herod. Or that the Holy Spirit is creating instability in your life that is causing pain through relational dysfunction and some other things like that. I do think, as you read Luke and 1 and 2, is that the Holy Spirit is often creating some instability to, to let us know there are things that you are clinging to for stability that will not sustain you. If your trust isn't in God for full stability like that is found in God. And there are times where the Holy Spirit is an agitator. There are times where the Spirit of God is a convictor. There are times where the Spirit of God is a disruptor 
to stir things up a little bit, to shake things up so you can see some things in your life that have to change. And it's the Spirit who brings that conviction to let you know that what you are trusting in right now is not a platform you can build your life on. So sometimes the Spirit is trying to open our eyes to what we are trusting in, that it is not in God so that we trust in God in deeper ways. The second thing, the Spirit of God reveals the purposes of God. You see this. This an angel talks to Zechariah as an angel talks to Mary. As uh, there, there are uh, the angels who are, are uh, words that are given to Simeon. You see this throughout Luke 1 and 2. The Spirit of God is revealing the purposes of God. What the Spirit doesn't do in Luke chapter 1 and 2 is visit people and then try to teach them about the purposes for their life. The Spirit is revealing the purposes of God to people and then helping people understand what their role is in that purpose. So the Spirit of God is not just trying to help you understand what it is that God wants for your life or that you want for your life. The Spirit is revealing the purposes of God in the world and then wants to help you understand what your role is in that purpose. Thirdly is this. The first is that there are times the Spirit creates some instability. The second is there that the Holy Spirit reveals the purposes of God. And the third is that the Holy Spirit blesses righteousness. And this is one that I noticed as I studied Luke chapter 1 and 2. In Luke chapter 1 verse 6, Luke tells you that Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous and blameless before God. And then the Holy Spirit fills both of them. You're not told that Mary was a righteous woman. The words don't show up, but you read Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, and it is full of the knowledge of God and understanding of God, where she had, her heart and her mind were wrapped around this greater mission. She understood who God was. There was depth in her. And we're told that the Holy Spirit was on her. When you read about Simeon, before it talks about Simeon, before it talks about the Spirit revealing plans to Simeon or the Holy Spirit filling Simeon, you were told that Simeon was a righteous person before God. Here's why I think it's so important. Let me back up just for a moment. I believe that the Holy Spirit fills people and then helps people, create, it creates in us a hunger for God. The Spirit generates that in us. But there are times where we have to open up ourselves to God to receive a greater filling of the Spirit of God. In Luke 1 and 2, it's people that you are told they are righteous, like they are pursuing the heart of God and the ways of God, and the Spirit fills them. There needs to be an openness in us for that. In Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, Paul says, when it comes to what you need to be filled with, you don't need to get drunk on wine, you need to get drunk on the Spirit of God. You need to be filled with the Spirit. And Paul's writing to people who are already Christians. And until you are under the complete influence of the Spirit of God, there needs to be a cry in us to open up ourselves to be filled with the Spirit of God. So if you'll throw up those three points I just had one more time, Jim. And I just want to ask you with those three, like which is the one that you need most in your life right now? Do you need the Spirit to come and shake some things up? And some of you may be thinking, there's already enough in my life that has been shaken up. But in the shaking, are you able to see what it is God wants for you? Are you in need of God revealing the purposes of God to you in some deeper ways? 
or are you in need of a deeper heart and hunger for the righteousness of God just to see what blessings of God will come from greater forms of righteousness and obedience a story I think about every Advent every Christmas season it's a story I read a few years ago of a young girl she was around the age of five and she had a newborn baby brother and the moment the parents brought this baby boy home she kept asking if she could go in the room and just have some alone time with, with her baby brother. And the parents resisted for a few days. And then she kept asking. So finally they were like, yeah, you can go have some time with your baby brother. And she closed the door. So those parents did what every parent would do. They put their ear up against that door. Like, what? why does she want some alone time with baby brother? And as they put their ears up against the door, what they heard, she went over to the bed and she said, Quick. Will you tell me what God is like? Because sometimes I forget. That's what she said. Will you tell me what God is like? Because sometimes I forget. And I hope over the next few weeks, in this teaching series, through Advent, through Christmas, that you will be given reminder after reminder of what God is like. And if you're in the room or you're joining us online and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, will you use this season of Advent to take seriously not only that Jesus came into this world, but that Jesus wants to come into your life and that he's inviting you into a better story. And there's no reminder that it's better of what God is like than when we take the bread and the cup every Sunday. This is what God is like. And if you will take the bread and the cup in your hand, if you're online, if you have the bread and the cup with you, if you will go ahead and take those. And as we go through the story of Christmas and the story of Advent, we spend time in Luke chapter 1 and 2 over the next few weeks. When it comes to what God is like, God stepped into the world. Jesus stepped in the sacrifice. Keeps stepping into your life. Keeps inviting us to the table. So let's bow our heads. Let's give God thanks. For God, uh, as we come to the table this morning, a table that holds us together through it all, as we come to, to this table with maybe our hearts and our minds, maybe thinking about how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, I just I ask as we come to the table, God, if there's anything I've said in the last few minutes that doesn't honor your heart, your character, your nature. May those words just fall to the ground, be trampled by you, and not be remembered at all. But if I've spoken anything that is true to who you are, may those words sink deep into our hearts, even mess with us a little bit this week, and bear great fruit. And now at the table, as we think about all Jesus has done and all Jesus still, he still has to do in our lives, we are so thankful that there is not a moment that you give up on us or turn your back on us. You are with us. You are for us. And may this be a season of turning of our hearts to you. So it's in the name of Jesus that we give thanks for the bread and for the cup. Amen. Please take the bread and the cup.